Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're in chapter 22 of our group learning program that uses this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, as our source text for this program. Each Sunday I go through a chapter in this book and help you to better understand it, as well as open up to any questions that you might have. So if you've read this chapter prior to class, you might actually be coming to class with some questions. Or if you plan to read it afterwards, this class will actually help you to be able to digest it and understand it more deeply. If you don't have a copy of this book yet, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and click on the link that says free books, and you'll be able to actually download it as an electronic version for free, or you can take that and go print it yourself, or you can order a printed copy off of Amazon. So having this book and actually reading the chapter before and or after class will really help you. Today's topic in the title of this chapter is mental health, a modern day delusion. This is where you start to understand that all the feelings and all the symptoms and all the anguish that we might be labeled as mental illness and that we might have been told that we're mentally ill, these things can actually be traced back to pollutions of the mind or untrained mind. And when we train the mind and eliminate the pollutions that the Buddha talked about, we can see that our brain isn't actually defective. We're not mentally ill. We might be having challenges. We might be having difficulties. We might be struggling with various parts of our life. But all those things are actually temporary. And when we gain wisdom to understand, then we can make wise decisions and actually improve the situations that we're experiencing. So what I'm going to do in today's class is I'm going to refresh your memory about the three universal truths and the four noble truths. Even though I didn't do this in this chapter, it's really important that anybody who's going to learn this chapter, that they already understand the three universal truths and the four noble truths. So if this is refresher for you, that's wonderful. If you've never heard me teach the four noble truths, then this is a great opportunity for you to actually learn them. And if you have learned them in the past, you really can't learn them enough. It's really important to hear them more than one time so that it deeply soaks into the mind so that you understand what is the problem in the unenlightened mind, what is the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. That's what is described in the Four Noble Truths. You start to understand the problem, the cause, elimination, and the path forward. And then with that understanding, you'll be able to understand the topic of today, which is mental health in modern day delusion, where we'll be able to talk about things like ADD, ADHD, bipolar disorder, depression, anorexia, bulimia, all kinds of different issues that one might be experiencing because these things really put a strain on our life when we're experiencing these symptoms. 
But if we don't understand the real cause of these symptoms, then we're not actually solving the problem and we don't get to a real solution. So by understanding the problem, the cause of the problem, the elimination and the way forward, then you can actually focus on the real problem and solve it rather than being stuck in this constant cycle of continuing to experience the same problems over and over again. But just remember that takes gradual training, gradual practice, and you'll experience gradual progress. So I'm going to switch over to using some visual aids to help me share this content with you. As we talk today, I'll be pausing at some different times to provide you the opportunity to ask questions and get clarification. Remember that everything that I share and everything that I teach, there's never a time where you should actually be believing what I'm sharing. Belief isn't going to help you get to enlightenment. Belief isn't going to help you to eliminate discontentedness. Belief isn't going to help you awaken the mind and get to wisdom. If you're just believing something, you don't know whether it's true or whether it's false because there's just belief. But if you learn something and then you can independently reflect on that and start to kind of observe whether it's true or not, and then you can put those teachings into practice to really discover the truth, then you can get the wisdom. You know what's true or false because you've independently verified it through your own reflection and your own practice. So as I talk with you today and help you to understand the three universal truths, the Four Noble Truths, and the other content related to mental health, then don't believe what I'm sharing. Instead, you can learn, reflect, and practice to be able to discover the truth for yourself. And I will help you do that as part of our class. I will help you understand that after I've taught you something, I will show you how to start reflecting and show you how to start practicing. So this first universal truth is called the universal truth of impermanence. Here, the Buddha explains that all conditioned objects are going to arise, they're gonna change, and they're gonna fade away. This is impermanence, that there's no constant, steady, fixed state for certain objects. So like this coffee mug that I have here that has water in it, this coffee mug is impermanent. It's a conditioned object. It arose through having clay or water and paint and glaze and things like that. And then it changes. It changes color. It's going to probably change shape if there's any chips on it or things like that. And then eventually it's going to fade away and it's going to no longer exist because it's impermanent. So this is the universal truth of impermanence, but you don't just believe it. Instead, you learn it and now you start reflecting because a universal truth means that it's universally true. Whether it's here in Thailand, whether it's in North America, South America, Europe, Australia, Asia, or some other part of the world, this is a universal truth that holds true everywhere. So you should be able to see this universal truth if it's truly a universal truth. So with understanding that things are constantly changing and there's not this steady fixed state, then now all you need to do in order to start reflecting is start to look for things that are permanent and see if you can find something in your life that's permanent. So you start looking around. Is this physical body permanent? This is a question you can ask yourself and come to a conclusion. Has this physical body been exactly the same size, shape, and color your entire life? Or has it been constantly changing? What about your hair or your teeth? Is this 
steady and fixed and permanent? Or has the length of your hair been changing, the texture, the color? Have you had exactly the same teeth? Have they not been decaying and needing to have fillings or other work done to the teeth? This is all in permanence. What about your job? Have you had exactly the same job your whole entire life? And will you have exactly that same job? Have you had the same income your whole life? Have you had the same relationships? Have you slept in exactly the same place every single day? These things are all constantly changing because of the universal truth of impermanence. So if you started reflecting on this and you're starting to see the truth, all you need to do is deeply soak this into the mind where you observe that all these things around you are always constantly changing. The trees, the weather, all these things are constantly changing. This is the universal truth of impermanence. If you can find just one thing in this material world that is permanent, then you've disproven the Buddha. So all conditioned objects are going to arise, change, and fade away. If you can find an object that is permanent, then you've disproven the Buddha, and this isn't a universal truth. But if you can't find a material possession or object or something like that, that isn't impermanent, then you understand that, yes, this is a universal truth. There are things that are permanent, but these are what's called unconditioned objects. The mental state of enlightenment is permanent. The peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. The reason why the mind is unenlightened and experiencing discontentedness. Well, we're going to talk about that in the Four Noble Truths, but just generally, the reason why this is occurring is because of pollution in the mind. It's these conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up. So when we remove those conditions or when we remove those pollutions of mind, now the mind is unconditioned. This brightness or this radiance, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy can come shining through. And now the mind isn't shaken up. It's permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it's unconditioned. It doesn't arise. It doesn't change and it doesn't fade away. The enlightened mind, it starts to be experienced as you eliminate these conditions that are causing it to be shaken up and the natural laws of existence, which is what the Buddha actually taught, these are unconditioned. This is why what he taught 2,500 years ago is directly applicable to what we experience today. Because the natural laws of existence haven't changed from his lifetime until now, what he described as the natural laws of existence don't change. The teachings themselves have degraded over time, meaning During the lifetime of the Buddha, he understood these teachings very clearly, very directly. He had deep wisdom to be able to explain these teachings. But then as people wrote them down, as people talked about them over 2,500 years, they slowly degraded. But the natural laws themselves haven't changed. So the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, it's the same natural law. It's just that our understanding in humanity has degraded over time. And now through going back to the source teachings, this community is interested in restoring the teachings back into the world where people can actually see what the Buddha actually taught. But those natural laws 
are exactly the same as they were during his lifetime as they are now. So these are unconditioned because the natural law of gamma, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. So the natural laws of existence, one of those natural laws is the natural law of gamma. So that doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. It's just always there. And the same thing with the enlightened mind itself. Those mental qualities of peaceful, calm, serene, and consent with joy are just always there. This second universal truth is called discontentedness. In the original source teachings, the word is used, it's dukkha. This is a Pali word that you might hear in Buddhist communities. This word dukkha is oftentimes translated as suffering, but I translate it as discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. And as we explain what discontentedness is or what dukkha is, I will circle back and help you understand why I don't use the word suffering. Because if you've been studying other resources, you might see this word constantly coming up of suffering. And I'll help you understand why I don't use that. But let me first explain to you what dukkha is as discontent, discontented, or discontentedness. When the Buddha described dukkha, he described it as three feelings, a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. What pleasant feelings are, are things like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. You've experienced these things before. You've experienced happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. Those feelings arose, they changed, and then they faded away. And then you experience painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. This is a conditioned feeling. It arises, it changes, and it fades away. And then there's feelings like neither painful nor pleasant, kind of like displeasure or unsatisfactoriness. If you were on public transportation and someone you didn't know came and sat really, really close to the physical body, and maybe even the two physical bodies were touching, you wouldn't say that was pleasant and you wouldn't say it was painful. It's kind of neither painful nor pleasant, kind of uncomfortable. This is what neither painful nor pleasant is. And I put boredom, loneliness, shyness, things like this in there. But some people tell me boredom and loneliness is quite painful. And you could consider that a painful feeling if you like. But nonetheless, there's these three feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. And now what you do is you take this teaching and you've just learned that this is a universal truth that the unenlightened mind is going to experience this discontentedness. And now you start reflecting and you start thinking about the various feelings that you've ever experienced over the course of your life. Does this explain what you've experienced? Or is there some feeling that you've experienced that doesn't fit into one of these three categories? Because if you can find just one feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, then once again, you've disproven the Buddha and this isn't a universal truth. So if you have a feeling that you can't see how it maps into one of these three, when we get to questions, you can ask about that and I can help you to see if you're having challenges to see how a certain feeling might fit into one of these three categories. But if you can see that, ah, yes, my mind does experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, this is a universal truth that all unenlightened beings are going to experience discontentedness.
Now, I don't explain this universal truth as suffering because if you use the word suffering, that explains the painful feelings. When you're angry or sad or frustrated, irritated, annoyed, feeling guilt, shame, fear, stress, or anxiety, you might say you're suffering. But when you experience happiness, excitement, elation, or thrill, would you say that you're suffering? Probably not. Or if that stranger, someone you don't know, came and sat next to you on a bus and their body was touching your body, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering in that situation. The mind's discontent. Same thing when there's happiness, excitement, elation. The mind is uncalm. It's unsteady. It's discontent or discontented. It's experiencing discontentedness. So if we use this word suffering and continue to use that and hold on to it just because that's the word that's been used in the past, if we're unwilling to let go of this word suffering, then we're just holding on to a decision that's been made in the past and we're not bringing our mind to a full understanding of what the Buddha was actually teaching as dukkha. In, in that situation, we would be understanding only 33% of what the Buddha was teaching. So that means that we're missing 66% of his teaching on this important topic. If we're missing 66% of the Buddha's teachings, good luck in getting to enlightenment because you can't get to enlightenment in understanding only 33% of his teachings and misunderstanding 66% of them. So by bringing our mind to understand the full understanding of this word dukkha that the Buddha used, being discontent, discontented, or discontentedness, then we fully understand with 100% clarity what the Buddha was teaching here is this universal truth. Because these are building blocks in order to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. Without understanding the universal truth of impermanence and the universal truth of discontentedness, you wouldn't be able to understand the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is the very first thing that a student would need to learn in order to progress towards enlightenment. If somebody doesn't understand the Four Noble Truths, they would never get to enlightenment whatsoever. So learning and practicing the Four Noble Truths, you can have this breakthrough where you deeply understand the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the way forward to eliminating discontent feelings in the mind. What you're eliminating as part of the path to enlightenment is conditioned feelings, where your mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition. And that's what we're going to talk about as part of the Four Noble Truths. An enlightened mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. That happiness that we experience in the unenlightened state, it's unsatisfactory because it arises, it changes, and it fades away. And when it's gone, the mind is either sad or angry or frustrated or maybe some other feeling or some other discontentedness, or it might experience some peacefulness here and there. But that happiness, excitement, elation, because it's a conditioned feeling, it's impermanent. It arises, changes, and fades away. The joy in the enlightened mind is permanent because it's not based on any specific thing. So and a being can get to the point where that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy is just always there. But unless somebody understands the Four Noble Truths and these three universal truths, they wouldn't be able to do that, along with other teachings that need to be learned as well. This third universal truth of non-self, 
It's not so important to understand this in order to understand the Four Noble Truths, but I'll just introduce you to it here. And then in chapter 16 is where I really go into it in more depth. And in the Pali Canon and English Study Group, I go into it in more depth there as well. What the universal truth of non-self is, is the Buddha is explaining that there is no permanent self. There is no self. There's no you here. Essentially what we have is we have a physical body and we have a mind that has come together for this existence. But the problem is, is that the unenlightened mind has the false belief or the misunderstanding or the misperception. It's confused and it thinks that this physical body is who you are as a person or it thinks that this mind is who you are as a person. So there's a certain self-image and a certain self-identity that an unenlightened being is maybe trying to project into the world. And when we hear agreeable things about the self-image or the self-identity, we get these pleasant feelings. And then it's only a matter of time before we hear these disagreeable things about the self-image or the self-identity. And then the mind is shaken up and experiencing painful feelings. So what the Buddha explains is this physical body, nor this mind, is who you are as a person. But because we've been taught throughout our entire life that this is who we are, and we have this label of a name, then we take on this ownership of this body and this mind thinking that this is who we are. And now the mind can be easily shaken up if we hear agreeable or disagreeable things. So the Buddha is saying that there is no self. He says there is no you there, that this is just a physical body. It's just a mind, essentially, that has come together for this existence. But this isn't who you are. And you can independently verify this for yourself. Think about when you were a child, when you were a teenager, maybe early adulthood, and maybe now. Think about the self-image that you had of yourself and who you thought you were as a person. That has been constantly changing over time. And this is where you can see that there is no permanent self. But again, the unenlightened mind is going to have this misperception that there is a self here. The other way that you can do this is you can think about the physical body. If you had an amputation of your arm and you didn't have that arm any longer, are you less of a person just because there's less of a physical body here? You have only use of one hand and arm now, but does that make you less of a person because you no longer have that piece of the body? Well, if this body is who you are as a person, then that means when you cut off the arm that you're less of a person now. But that's not true. If the arm was cut off, you're not less of a person. You just have less use of that particular limb. And there's other ways that you can independently verify that there is no permanent self here. But there's this intellectual learning that needs to happen with this universal truth. Then there's this reflection. And then there's this practice of getting to the point where the mind has fully realized non-self. And that's a certain amount of work that needs to be done in order to get to that point. But since we're focusing on the Four Noble Truths, I would like to just pause here and be sure that you guys have an understanding of these three universal truths before we move on to other content. So any questions that you guys have, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like. Yes, sir. Tonka is asking, 
Curiosity, it's not a feeling, it's a motivation, right? I have a certain curiosity, I'm motivated to understand something. This isn't a feeling that is arising, it's just a motivation or, you know, an intention behind understanding something. There are no more questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now let's look at a topic that it's also important for you to understand, which is the understanding of the word craving, desire, attachment. These words are used in other parts of our daily lives, but in terms of the Buddhist teachings, it's important to understand what these words mean related to these teachings. We also use the words expectations, wants, holding, grasping, clinging in other parts of our daily lives that now that you're studying the Buddhist teachings, we need to define these and make sure that you understand them as it relates to the Buddhist teachings so that when I talk about the Four Noble Truths that you'll understand them. So craving, desire, attachment or wants or expectations or holding, grasping, clinging, this is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness, the mind pulling in the direction for the objects of its affection. This is like a yearning, a longing, an unquenchable thirst. You've probably experienced this in relationship to certain things that you wanted to acquire, maybe a new purse or a new pair of shoes or some new clothes or a new job, or maybe you were single and you wanted a boyfriend or girlfriend or a husband or wife really badly, or you wanted more money in your salary and you observed at certain times in your life, there was this longing and yearning, this unquenchable thirst that you were chasing after something, almost like a wild animal chasing its prey. This is what a craving desire attachment is. And the mind is longing and yearning for this, thinking that this object is going to create lasting inner satisfaction. So this is what we call craving desire attachment. Do you guys have any questions on understanding what a craving desire attachment is? Okay, so now let's look at the Four Noble Truths. All throughout the resources that I share, all throughout the books and classes and so forth, I share the words of the Buddha because it's his words that have the penetrating wisdom to help you understand his teachings and what he actually taught. Here with the Four Noble Truths, I've summarized his words. This is a very rare situation. And I did this because his Four Noble Truths are quite detailed and it requires a lot more preliminary learning nowadays than it perhaps did during his lifetime. And in order for me to help you have this breakthrough and establish right view, then putting the Four Noble Truths into a more simplified version that you can understand will really help you to have this breakthrough, understanding the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the way forward. So here, let me help you understand the Four Noble Truths so you can have this breakthrough. And then in the Pali Canon and English Study Group, that's where I share the words of the Buddha on the Four Noble Truths and dive into it in detail. In this first volume one, I have the words of the Buddha in there for the Four Noble Truths, but I don't teach them until we get to the Pali Canon and English Study Group because that's the point where somebody's mind is really ready to look at those teachings. But here, you'll be able to have this breakthrough in establishing right view by studying this summarized version of the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is that everyone that is unenlightened 
will experience discontentedness. So remember, discontentedness is pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is those conditioned feelings. So if you get the objects of your affection, then there's going to be these pleasant feelings. If you don't get them, then there's going to be these painful feelings. That's what's explained in the second noble truth. But this first noble truth is everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So if you experience discontentedness, then you know that your mind is currently unenlightened. And that's important to understand so that then you can take action to be able to now resolve that and address that and evolve so that you can get to enlightenment. So if you experience those conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria on some condition, then you know the mind's unenlightened. Or if you experience sadness or anger or frustration and those other painful feelings, then you know that the mind is unenlightened. And if you experience displeasure or uncomfortableness or unsatisfactoriness, those neither painful nor pleasant feelings, then you know that the mind is unenlightened. And then the goal would be to now understand why so that you can then move on. So the problem is that the mind is experiencing discontentedness. This is the problem in the unenlightened mind. The second noble truth explains the cause. Discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. I'm going to explain that a few times and give you some examples. Discontentedness, those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, that mental longing with a strong eagerness, the chasing after the objects of our affection, the unquenchable thirst. That's what's causing the discontentedness to arise. Because the mind wants things to be permanent, when we understand the universal truth of impermanence, that all these things are impermanent. So here's an example. If you've had a boyfriend or girlfriend at some point in your life, and when you guys came together, you got these pleasant feelings. There was this happiness, this excitement, this thrill. Wow, somebody's taking an interest in me. Wow, somebody's interested in spending time with me. Somebody's calling me and asking me out on dates or something like this. The condition is, I've got this new boyfriend or girlfriend, and as long as I've got that condition, there's these pleasant feelings. But then at some point during the relationship, the relationship started to deteriorate, and now you guys split or you separated. And now there's these painful feelings of anger or sadness or frustration, maybe even loneliness or boredom comes into the mind. This is because the mind was craving, it was yearning, it was longing for this relationship to be permanent. That's what caused the anger and the sadness. It was wanting this relationship to be permanent. And then when it wasn't permanent, the unenlightened mind didn't understand that. It didn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. So when this relationship ended and now there's this impermanence, the unenlightened mind didn't like that. So here, the second noble truth is saying that the unenlightened mind is craving permanence. Another way to say that is the unenlightened mind does not like impermanence. It doesn't like change. So when things are changing in your life, 
the mind doesn't like that. It doesn't like this change. It wants to hold on because of its craving and clinging. It wants to hold on and it wants to keep things permanent. Another example is if you had a car and this was a brand new car or some other possession and you saw that there's a scratch on it, now the mind gets angry or upset or frustrated because the mind's craving for this car to be permanently beautiful or this object that you have. It's wanting it to be permanently with you. But this is impermanence. The scratch didn't cause the discontentedness. The scratch is just impermanence. What's causing the anger or the frustration to arise in that situation is that the mind is longing and yearning, having this mental longing, wanting this car to be permanently beautiful. But now with this scratch, it gets discontent because of the scratch. It doesn't like this impermanence. So that's the cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. The mind wants things to be permanent, but yet all these things are impermanent. The third noble truth is the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So if we eliminate that mental longing and strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of our affection, then you can eliminate the discontentedness because you're causing it. See, with wrong view, in the unenlightened mind and lacking wisdom, we blame other people for our discontent feelings. We think that other people are causing us to be discontent. And that's why we never solve the problem. We just stay stuck in this cycle of experiencing discontentedness over and over and over again. Because with wrong view, we're blaming other people for our anger or our sadness or our frustration. But with right view, when we accept responsibility for our discontent feelings, and we know that we're causing it ourselves through our own craving, desire, attachment, then we can actually address the real problem. We can eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, and we can actually get to complete peacefulness and complete joy. And the way to do that is explained in the fourth noble truth. It's the fourth noble truth where the Buddha explains the path to eliminating discontentedness is the eightfold path. The eightfold path is eight steps. That is a complete and perfect plan of exactly how to get to enlightenment. Step by step, you gradually learn, you gradually reflect, and you gradually practice. And as you bring your practice up to practicing more and more of the Eightfold Path, you'll see the discontentedness gradually diminish in the mind. And this is what produces enlightenment in the mind because you now have wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline that you can now control the mind. But as long as the mind has this craving, desire, attachment, it's going to continue to experience discontentedness. The way that we eliminate discontentedness is through eliminating the craving, desire, attachment. The way we eliminate craving, desire, attachment is by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more and accumulating enough of those benefits over a long-term period. And we practice generosity the giving and sharing more than is strictly required. So our time, effort, energy, and resources, we learn to share and eliminate selfishness. Because when there's craving and clinging, the mind has this desire to hold on to things tightly. There's this selfishness where the mind is holding on. So by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, when the mind is longing and yearning, we 
train it to cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath, gaining more discipline of the mind where we can control the mind. And when the mind's holding on, we use generosity regularly over a consistent long-term period of time where we're sharing our time, effort, energy, and resources in order to give and share and train the mind to let go. This is why we practice generosity as part of our practice of the path to enlightenment. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about either the three universal truths or the four noble truths. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, sir. I have a question about uh, there's a third discontentedness where it's neither painful or pleasant. So somebody, for example, sits down on, uh, by me on the bus. What would an enlightened person uh, feel in that situation? They would, They would just be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because they're not expecting to permanently not have something touch the body. They understand that this person sitting next to them, an enlightened person would have loving kindness and compassion, which is active goodwill, a genuine interest in seeing them be well, concern for their misfortune. They would view this person as their brother, their sister, their mother, their father, or some other relative. They wouldn't view them as a stranger. It's just somebody you haven't met yet. They would view this person as essentially a member of their family. And when they sit down and if your bodies are touching, no big deal. It's just impermanent. So the body would be touching this person and then the mind would just be completely calm and peaceful in that situation. Not craving or wanting to have this permanence where nobody ever touches the body. Okay, I see. So it would be just just no discomfort, just the the person's there, that just just as if the person's not there with him. Yeah. I I think I understand. Mm. Uh, No, there's no more questions this time, sir. Thank you. Okay, I noticed Miranda has her hand up in Zoom. You might not be able to see it on your screen, Tony. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, The second noble truth, can this be seen in daily life as, to give more of an example, when a policy changes or procedure changes in a place for someone's working and the employees are discontent, they're unhappy about this change, is that them craving everything to be permanent? Would that be a good example of that? And then that change, that impermanence causing the discontentedness in the mind? Yes, exactly. So if things have been a certain way for a period of time and then they're changing, even though people might know that it's a better way of doing things at work, people are going to be discontent because they're craving and clinging. They already are doing things one way and now they have to change and do something else. The unenlightened mind doesn't like that. And this is one of the ways that you can reflect connecting to your question, Miranda, and your observation is Now, the way that you do this is now that you've learned the Four Noble Truths, you start reflecting on this and you look at your own discontentedness. It might have been today or yesterday or some other day where you can look at all the anger, the sadness, the frustration that you've ever experienced. You should be able to identify what the mind was craving in that situation. And 
there you'll be able to prove the truth and independently verify it that your mind has indeed been causing all your own discontentedness and even happiness excitement elation you can see your craving desire attachment there too so like i remember as a kid when grandma would come over to the house or we would go to grandma's house or or mom would come you know as we got older and mom would come visit us at our house there's all this excitement right because there's this craving this longing this yearning for grandma to come visit or mom to come visit that's what's producing those pleasant feelings and then when we have to leave from grandma's house or grandma's leaving oh we're so sad right because now this condition that caused the pleasant feelings to arise has now changed and the mind doesn't like that impermanence that grandma's leaving right so this is exactly how you reflect and independently verifies make these observations in your own life and you can even see it in the people's lives around you because it's not just you that's causing your own discontentedness every single being that's discontent they're causing it themselves yes thank you sir mm-hmm. and then um, oh i'm sorry let me add to that miranda and then the way to practice this so that you can then get more and more of the truth and get the benefit of this is from now on now into the future is whenever the mind is discontent rather than blaming other people or blaming the situation which is what the unenlightened mind wants to do when it has wrong view instead take ownership over those feelings and start identifying what are the cravings desire attachments that you're having that is causing this discontentedness to arise that's how you practice right view is that you no longer blame other people or the situation but instead you look inward and you try to uncover what are the craving desire attachments that are causing this discontentedness to arise and now more and more you can practice right view and actually solve the real problem and where you're having trouble identifying the craving desire attachments that's where you reach out to a teacher or somebody else in our community and then we help you to be able to then identify your craving desire attachments and you'll be able to then uncover those and then eliminate them because the breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is a generalized training to eliminate craving desire attachment but there's a real benefit in actively understanding what are your craving desire attachments so that you can then actively work to eliminate them so if i was really attached to my mobile phone and whenever my mobile phone's not around you get stressed or anxiety then okay the mind is not comfortable with this impermanence it wants the mobile phone to be with you permanently so now not only are you doing breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to generally train the mind to eliminate that but now you need to purposefully leave the mobile phone behind for several times until the mind can be just as peaceful and joyful with the phone as without the phone and this is how you actively train the mind when you identify cravings you then put the mind in a situation where whatever it's craving it doesn't get it and then it has to be trained to be peaceful and joyful in that situation regardless yes thank you sir mm-hmm. you're welcome oh did did i answer your next question i thought you had a second question okay that was your question okay so i answered it <laughs> Is that all the questions, Tony? Yes, there's no questions. More questions. Sir. All right. So let's move on to 
looking at the Eightfold Path where you can understand that there's these eight steps that the Buddha shared as part of eliminating discontentedness. This is the path to enlightenment. This is your life practice. The title of this book is Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is the path. This is the life practice. And there's eight individual steps that are categorized into three categories, wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. And understanding and practicing the Four Noble Truths is the first step, right view. If you blamed everyone else for your discontent feelings, then you're perfect and everyone else needs to be trained, right? But you can't train 7.5 billion people in the world to do things your way. So as long as we have wrong view, thinking everyone else is causing our discontent feelings, then we can't make progress on this path. But when we accept responsibility for our discontent feelings and we're actually addressing the real problem through the teachings that the Buddha shares, then we can actually solve the problem. So with wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, we can actually solve the problem. So we're dialing in each of these eight steps more and more and more, where you're not mastering one step before you move on to the next. Instead, you're learning about all eight steps, and then you're implementing all eight steps into your life, and then dialing it in closer and closer and closer. You should get to the point where you understand the Eightfold Path like the back of your hand. You'd be able to explain it to anybody just easily. That's how much you would like to understand the Eightfold Path, that you could just explain the Four Noble Truths. You could explain what is right intention. You could explain what right speech is, for example. That takes time for you to build that up. But day by day, week by week, month by month, you can focus in and understanding each of these individual steps and then refining what you do in daily life to practice each one of these more and more and more. And that would be bringing your practice up to now practicing the full path in all situations. Let's talk about mental health and starting to understand the brain and the mind. The brain is not the mind and the mind is not the brain. These are actually two separate things. The brain is the physical organ that is controlling the body. The mind is not physical in nature. It's non-tangible. It can't physically be touched. So while there's a connection between the brain and the mind, they're not the same exact thing. In Western culture, we tend to point to the head when we talk about the mind. And that happens to be where the brain is as well. But here in Thailand, when they talk about the mind, they tend to touch the heart. They think about the mind as being inside the heart. And then there's other cultures where they think about the mind as being outside the body. In reality, it's non-tangible. It's non-physical. You can't point to where the mind is because it's not a physical thing that takes up space that you can point to and say, here's where it is. And it doesn't really matter because if it's in the head, if it's in the heart, if it's outside the body, it doesn't change the fact that if it's unenlightened, it's polluted and it needs to be trained. So it doesn't matter where it actually is. Instead, it's important to understand the brain and the mind as being two separate things. And while there's a connection between them, they're not the same thing. The mind is being trained in the teachings of the Buddha. And as you learn and practice on this path, you're training the mind. There is an effect to the brain, but these are two separate things. 
people experience symptoms of things like sadness, stress, anxiety, and others, what we just described as discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, and people seek chemicals to change the brain chemistry, thinking that this is going to solve the problem of what's going on in the mind. But when you understand that these are two separate things, and that you understand that what's causing the discontent feelings is craving, desire, attachment in the mind, then you come to understand that changing brain chemistry isn't going to permanently fix the problems in the mind. Instead, what's happening is because of craving, desire, attachment, there are pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant in the mind. This is then affecting the brain in the brain chemistry. But because in modern days, we don't understand this, we're actually applying pharmaceuticals and chemicals to the brain, trying to change the mind. When there's some effect to the mind, but we can't permanently solve the problems in the mind by just changing brain chemistry. Because the problem that is causing the discontent feelings is craving desire attachment. It's not brain chemistry that is causing the discontent feelings. So therefore, we can't solve the discontent feelings by modifying the brain chemistry. The mind needs to be trained to let go of craving, desire, attachment. When we train the mind to let go of craving, desire, attachment, then this strong eagerness, this longing, this yearning will eliminate the conditioned feelings of these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. But changing the brain chemistry isn't going to do that. Let me give you some examples, some things that are sometimes described as mental illness or sometimes even a brain defect. Some examples that are labeled mental illness are things like childhood trauma. Depending on what your experiences have been like in childhood, you might have experienced some various experiences like physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, or things like this. And in that situation, there was painful feelings that arose, certain sadness maybe that existed in the mind. And because the unenlightened mind is so good at craving and clinging and holding on to things, it's holding on to these past experiences, these painful feelings. And now, even though those things are long in the past, today in your current life, you might be experiencing painful feelings based on things that happened in the past. But these things are in the past. They're no longer going to happen now. But because the mind is holding on and thinking that this is who you are as a person and that these things that transpired in childhood, the mind is craving and clinging and holding on to them. Now it's continuing to experience painful feelings based on experiences that happened long in the past. This is the craving. So because the mind is craving and clinging, holding on, it's gonna keep experiencing these painful feelings until it's trained to let go and realize that those experiences don't define who you are as a person today. So we call this trauma, but in reality what it is is just experiences. It's just experiences that the mind is holding on to. And because the mind craves permanence, it doesn't know how to let go. 
So the things that happened in the past, the mind holds on to them and it conditions the mind to keep experiencing these feelings over and over and over again. Essentially, the mind is being traumatized over and over and over again based on the experiences that happened in the past. But the mind can be trained to let this go and realize that that's long in the past. You're an adult now. You know how to make wise decisions and you're not going to be in a situation where that can occur again. But until the mind's ready and willing and trained to let go, it's going to keep holding on to these past experiences and it'll keep experiencing these painful feelings until it eliminates the clinging to the past. Then there's things like bipolar, and we're going to talk about others as well. Things like bipolar disorder that is oftentimes described as a mental illness or that somebody is mentally ill or their brain is defective. What people describe as symptoms of bipolar is that the mind goes into this excited or manic situation where there's all these pleasant feelings that are experienced. And then after a certain period of time, it drops down into this sadness or this depression or this despair, like painful feelings. And this mind can go up and down and up and down either throughout the day or throughout multiple weeks or months. And essentially what's going on here is there's this craving. Oftentimes people who are diagnosed with bipolar will have these immense cravings, desires, attachments, these mental longings where they'll be longing and yearning for sex or drugs or gambling or shopping or spending time with people or friends or just this longing and yearning. And the mania goes up and up and up and up and up. And then eventually, since that's not sustainable, the mind goes up so high that then it crashes really low down into sadness and despair. This is not a brain defect. This is not that the person is necessarily mentally ill. They're having some challenges and some real anguish in terms of the symptoms that they're experiencing, but the cause isn't a brain defect. The cause is the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing with a strong eagerness. And if this is addressed through training the mind, then the individual can actually experience real benefit and real improvement. But as long as the mind has wrong view, thinking that the problem is brain chemistry and that the chemicals are imbalanced in the brain and we need to address it with medication, then you can't get to a real solution because there's still wrong view in the mind, blaming the problem on something that isn't actually the problem. So if the mind is conditioned to believe that there's a chemical imbalance in the brain or the brain is defective and that's the source of the problem, then the solution that's offered is pharmaceutical treatments to change the chemistry of the brain. And this does affect the mind to a certain degree, but it never truly solves the problem because the true source of the problem is still unknown. Therefore, people are led to believe that their intentions, their speech, and their actions is a result of brain chemistry rather than what the real cause of the discontent feelings are in these harmful intention, speech, and actions. It's just an untrained mind. It's that the mind has craving, desire, attachment. It's lacking this wisdom, this moral conduct, and this mental discipline. And it's functioning in a way that has wrong view to start with because it doesn't understand the real problem. So the solution that's being implemented isn't actually solving or fixing the problem. And in some cases, when people are experiencing these acute mental challenges, 
there can be something called psychosis or delusional thinking or hallucinations. In these situations, there's no amount of explaining the Four Noble Truths that is going to actually solve the problem. Instead, there needs to be medical intervention with medications in order to bring the mind back to a level of stability, where then the person can learn about things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the meditation techniques, and all these other things to train the mind. In places like the Western world, we don't see these teachings there predominantly, so we struggle a lot with these difficult challenges with our mental health, and we find that we end up experiencing a lot of challenges. But a place like here in Thailand, where these teachings have been for 800 to 1200 years, you don't see these kind of problems. If the problem is a brain defect, and that's what the true problem is, is what's causing the discontent feelings, then we would observe that all populations of people across the world would have the same defects and the same problems throughout all populations. Humanity's mind would have devolved and kind of diminished to the point where everybody in the world would be experiencing these exact same problems. But we don't see that. As I mentioned, there's some cultures and some countries that have a lot of problems with mental health. And then there's other places like here in Thailand that we don't see those same problems. We don't see a massive amount of mass shootings in schools, for example, here in Thailand. I think there's only ever been one ever. And then we don't see a massive amount of murders and rape and drug abuse and things like this. We don't see the hostility and the harshness and the aggressiveness, the hatred or the ill will. Right? We don't see these kind of difficulties and problems in society here because they have right view. Not everybody, of course, but a large majority of the population has right view and they understand any feelings that they're experiencing is a result of their own decisions and what they're experiencing is based on craving, desire, attachment. So there's this responsibility and this accountability that everybody kind of has for themselves or at least the vast majority of the population. So we don't see this shaking up of society here because of the mind becoming so discontent because people have the teachings that they need in order to keep stability in the mind. Humanity's mind or the human mind couldn't have truly become unbalanced and defective in just a few decades. You know, a, a couple of hundred years ago, we didn't talk about mental illness and a brain defect that people understood that if they were having sadness, that that was their sadness, for example, perhaps. They didn't blame it on a brain defect. But now in modern times, we've gotten to the point where we think that these things are illnesses and it requires medical intervention in order to fix something like sadness. So our human minds, our brains, this organ that we have couldn't have become defective in just a few decades, essentially 50 years or 100 years, it wouldn't have been able to do that. If the modern mental health practices are helping, then we would see that the number of cases and the number of people with mental illness would be declining. So if there was a problem throughout humanity that we just didn't understand, and it's modern medicine that's helped us to understand that, well, once we understand that problem and we have a solution, then once we implement that solution, we would see the number of mental health cases 
in mental illness would be declining. We would see this gradual decline in mental health cases because we actually found the problem and we've now solved it with this medical intervention. And we would see the number of cases declining. But that's not actually what we see. We actually see the number of mental illnesses that are being diagnosed continuing to increase because the problem isn't the brain being defective and it's not brain chemistry that's the problem. If modern mental health practices are actually helping in solving a real problem, then where these mental health practices are actually being practiced the most, places like America, the UK, Australia, and others, then this would be the most stable and steady population that we would see in the world. Because if these mental health practices are truly working, then America would be the most mentally stable place that you'd ever see, or places like Canada or the UK or Australia, because that's where these mental health practices and pharmaceuticals are being distributed the most is in these countries. So we would see that these populations of people would have the most stable and steady minds out of everybody in the world. So is that what we see? Because that would be evidence that these modern mental health practices are actually working. Basically, the way to eliminate and eradicate the discontentedness is through learning and practicing the teachings and training the mind to get to a stable mind. If we just use medications only, then it's not going to actually produce the permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Those medical interventions are going to be needed for somebody who has psychosis or who has hallucinations or things like this. The mind needs to be brought back to some level of stability. And that's where when the brain chemistry is so out of whack that the medications can help. But then during that period of time where the mind becomes stable, it's really important to then train the mind through learning and practicing with things like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and meditation techniques to bring the stability into the mind where the mind can gradually eliminate medications and become more stable, being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Rather than being relegated to a life of medications and therapies and various expenses, you can actually free yourself from all of this through learning and practicing the teachings and actually training the mind based on the real problems of the mind. So rather than having a lifelong practice of taking medications and experiencing the expense and the side effects of these, you can actually function in a way where you're free of these medications. But it's gonna take gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. You'll know when the right time is if you choose, when or if you choose to ever decrease your medications. You'll know when the right time is for that because as you learn and practice and you feel more and more stability coming into the mind, you'll know that it's the right time to gradually start decreasing your medications. So as you gradually ramp up your practice and developing your life practice, you can gradually bring down your medication over time. But that's something that you need to choose to do for yourself when or if you ever get to that point. I don't tell students when it's the right time to actually eliminate medications if they're choosing to do that. That individual has to decide for themselves because they're the ones who are living with that mind and they know what their mind has felt like and what they've experienced in the past. And then through learning and practicing these teachings, they'll know what they're experiencing now and the stability that they have in the mind. So let me pause here 
and provide you guys an opportunity to ask any questions that you like so far about the things that I've shared. Remember, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, sir. In, uh, in Zoom, Kyla's uh, asked, and perhaps I this answer, but reinforce it. What advice can you give to someone who is going to attempt to come off the medication? Uh, can you repeat that last part? Some advice to someone who is going to attempt to come off their medication. Oh, okay. For someone who's going to attempt to come off their medication. Okay. So first of all, someone's practice needs to be really well developed and you know bring their practice up where they're regularly meditating and they can see that they're meditating two or three times a day and they've built up their practice and they're starting to see the stability in the mind for multiple months, right? And they can see this stability starting to come into the mind. And then as they do that, they would like to also completely eliminate things like caffeine and completely eliminate things like cigarettes or nicotine, making sure there's no illicit drugs or alcohol or anything like that, because that's going to cause problems in the mind. So if you've eliminated substances that cause heedlessness and you're increasing your meditation and all the other teachings and you're seeing the stability come into the mind, then it's time to maybe consider eliminating your medications. And then when it's time to do that, you would like to do that gradually. So if you're taking, say, 1,000 milligrams of something, you might decide to go to 500 milligrams or 750 milligrams. Do that for several weeks or a month or two and get the body and the mind adjusted to less medication. And then break it down again to maybe 250 milligrams. And now you do that for several weeks or for a month or so and then break that in half, right? So you gradually take this away because the body and the mind don't like impermanence. So if you went cold turkey on something like a medication, the mind's not gonna like that because it doesn't like impermanence. So if you gradually ease it out like that, if at any point that you see that maybe the mind uh, needs that medication, you can bring it right back up pretty easily. But then you can gradually kind of move it out slowly but surely. If you went cold turkey on getting rid of medications and just abruptly stopped it, then if you were trying to pick it back up again, it's going to take some time before that medication comes back into the body and starts affecting the brain and the mind accordingly. So if you gradually ease it out, if you need to bring it back in for any length of time, then it's easier to do that. But if you stay dedicated to it and you let the people around you know, like your wife, your husband, your kids, people that are really close to you, let them know that you're working on eliminating your medication. That way they can keep an eye out. If things aren't going so well, they'll just kind of know and then they'll be able to kind of step in and help you if they see things that maybe aren't going so well. And also, if you're working with a doctor, be sure that you have conversations with that person and they're supportive and you decreasing your medication and then ultimately eliminating it. Thank you, sir. And Chrissy, you have a question in Zoom? Hi, yes, thank you. Um, Teacher David, you mentioned the mind and the brain being two separate things um, and the brain affecting the mind. Um, that. I'm, my, I guess my question is not all mental diagnosis 
don't affect the mind or the brain because sometimes the you can um there's tests that are done that show the brain having an effect from a diagnosis such as ADD um and depression there's stud like not um studies but there's like pictures of the brain the organ actually being affected by these diagnoses like um so i'm wondering how how do you explain that um i understand the difference between the mind and the brain and that you need to train the mind to help the brain but if there is actually brain chemicals being affected like chemically affected brains there is actual reasons why maybe someone can't train their brain with their mind without medication okay so if there's sadness in the mind like the mind is sad this is because the mind's craving it's longing it's yearning for something to be permanent and then now there's this sadness that comes into the mind that then affects the brain chemistry that the brain chemistry can be off because of what's going on in the mind where what is happening in western medicine is all they're thinking about is the brain they're not thinking about the mind they just see that the brain chemistry is off and they think that the solution is to implement a chemical that's going to change the brain chemistry because they don't understand the mind and what's truly causing the sadness the sadness isn't being caused by the brain chemistry it's being caused by the craving desire attachment so it's looking at it in the, a direction of just being isolated on the brain which is western medicine versus understanding that the brain and the mind are two different things and that what's going on in the mind is affecting the brain chemistry so the brain chemistry can be modified with chemicals and then this has an effect on the mind but that's not a permanent solution you can't change the brain chemistry to be able to eliminate craving desire attachment in the mind so when we understand what the real problem is is craving desire attachment then we can focus on that and then as those are being eliminated and the mind is being trained we'll start experiencing this stability in the mind and then the brain chemistry will adjust and naturally go back to functioning the way that it's supposed to be functioning but as long as we're tinkering with the brain chemistry with chemicals thinking that that's going to fix the mind it actually doesn't work that way and that's why people get relegated to this lifelong of medications can i can i keep going with questions or oh, should i just wait of course yeah <laughs> just keep going keep asking okay. all the questions you like so what you're saying is it's okay to or some may need to have medication in order to train their mind that some may need medication to slow it down in order in order to train their mind yes absolutely so like when i was in college at the age of 20 i had what they call a psychotic break my mind went into psychosis for the first time it was extremely scary i didn't even know what it was and other people had to you know essentially tell me what was going on i was in a hospital in five point restraints you know i had restraints on all my limbs across my chest across my head i was in a straitjacket at different times i was being injected with all kinds of 
chemicals and needles and different things that was needed in order to bring the mind out of psychosis. But had I learned these teachings at birth or as I was aging, the mind would have never got to psychosis because it would have been well-trained and I wouldn't have experienced this unraveling of the mind that occurs with psychosis. And I had different hospital stays in my life over 24 years of taking pharmaceuticals and to a certain degree believing that I was mentally ill, but not truly believing it because as I learned these teachings, it cleared out all the symptoms of everything I was experiencing, including I was diagnosed with muscular sclerosis at one time. And I was told that I needed to take injections three times a week. And all of these symptoms were completely eliminated through training the mind and eliminating the pollution of the mind. So when the mind gets into psychosis or has hallucinal uh, hallucinations, there's no amount of meditation or the Four Noble Truths that's going to fix that at that particular moment. The mind needs to be brought up to stability by changing the brain chemistry because now the brain chemistry is so out of whack that it's having psychosis and hallucinations that it needs to be addressed and balanced so that there can get some stability in order to now start learning and training the mind. And now through that, the mind can get to the point where the brain chemistry has been naturally adjusted and the chemicals aren't needed anymore. Okay, thank you, sir. So mm-hmm. if I'm understanding correctly, it isn't that one shouldn't take medicine if the medicine is needed and prescribed, but should take medicine while working on eliminating the craving and attachment and letting go. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no rush or hurry to to eliminate medications. You know, if somebody has been on multiple medications for an extended period of time, it's quite challenging to reduce those. And you don't have to do that today. You don't have to do it tomorrow. What's important is to learn and practice the teachings, get the stability of mind first. And as you observe that the stability of mind is coming into place, that's where you can then gradually decrease your medications if you choose. And then if at any point you feel like you need to bring the medication back in, you can do that too. But just be sure to keep focusing on what the real problem is, which is the craving desire attachment and practicing the Eightfold Path to gain this wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. And as the mind is practicing those things more and more closely and the stability comes into the mind, that's where someone might consider having seen stability for an extended period of time, they might consider to decrease and ultimately eliminate their medications. Okay, thank you. Can I ask one more question? You can ask 50 more if you like. (laughs) (laughs) How do hormones, especially for women, play into this? Um, I know um, here in the Western culture, um, they speak of postpartum psychosis or postpartum depression and how um, going through postpartum feels to have significantly affect, affected my mind. Um, mm-hmm. Does that then affect the brain? And um, how does that, how do the hormones play into all of, all of this with the medication and all the delusion? So I don't know much about hormones, but let me explain to you what's going on and what we're calling postpartum depression. 
Okay, so a person who has never been a mom before and they get pregnant, right? The physical body in their life goes through enormous amounts of change in a really short period of time. You know, nine months is what a woman will typically carry a baby for. Their physical body in their life, in what's happening in their life, experiences drastic change. And the mind doesn't like change. The unenlightened mind doesn't like impermanence. So that's what's actually occurring with postpartum depression. It's not the hormones that are causing a woman to be sad or otherwise feeling unwell. Of course, there are physical things that are happening to the physical body on a hormonal level, but that's not what's causing the sadness or the depression. It's all these changes in their life and the mind is craving. So the craving desire attachment is what's causing the discontentedness that depression is the person's mind is holding on. And now with all these changes that are occurring, there's this sadness that comes into the mind. We think that, okay, there's this brand new baby. Everything should be happy. It should be wonderful. But the thing is, is that the untrained mind and lacking the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence, the mind's clinging to a certain life, a certain lifestyle, a certain aspects of the physical body. And now with all these changes to the physical body, thinking that this body is who you are as a person, you go from being completely just independent to now you've got this being growing in your body to now the being comes out and you're left with all these extra things in the body related to having the baby there's extra fat or tissue you know the the breast and breastfeeding if someone's breastfeeding there's changes in your life and your sleep patterns are changing throughout pregnancy and after the baby's born there's all these things to purchase and there's financial challenges that are happening there's the stress and anxiety that comes up into the mind because someone might feel like they're unprepared to be a parent so there's all these drastic changes that are happening around the time of childbirth and actually carrying the child that leads to the mind experiencing sadness because the mind is craving and clinging holding on and when all these changes are occurring the mind doesn't like this impermanence I understand. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Thank you. And Miranda has her hand up, sir. Yes, thank you, Tony. Um, slightly, well, yes, it is related actually to one of Chrissy's questions about the chemical imbalance in the brain and then the link between the mind and the brain. Is this why we oftentimes see medications not really be 100% effective. For a couple of examples, um, growing up, my father was diagnosed with depression and he took antidepressants. But even taking those, he was never really happy. He never really came not depressed. So to me, watching this growing up, that medication wasn't really fixing the problem. It was making it bearable for him to go on day by day and do his daily tasks and go to work, but it wasn't actually fixing the depression. And then I've been around people also who have had anxiety and have taken medication for anxiety. And this brings them down to a level where they can function, but that anxiety is still present. They can still have panic attacks and they still 
function at this level of they're always just very, you know, uptight, wound up, anxious feeling. And watching this, this is why I chose not to take medications for things like this. But it seems like medications can fix the brain portion of what's going on, the actual chemical imbalance, but they can't fix the mind. So it seems like, at least in North America, those type of cultures, there's a disconnect there where we only get partial treatment because we're treating this chemical imbalance, but we're not treating the mind and the craving desire attachment to then not be affected by or actually fix the chemical imbalance of the brain and actually cure these things like depression and anxiety and other mental illnesses is that am i looking at this correctly sir yeah i think so you know what these medications do is they suppress the feelings typically and you almost feel kind of numb you know in some cases you know walking around uh, being medicated because it's suppressing the feelings it's not actually solving what's causing the feelings what's causing the feelings is the craving desire attachment so if we're just suppressing the feelings it's not actually solving it. it's just kind of making us feel numb to them and almost sometimes feeling like a zombie walking around the medications can regulate the brain chemistry and get some level of stability but as you have observed with your father it's not a permanent solution because the brain can only respond to those medications for a certain period of time and then as things change one medication isn't as effective anymore and there needs to be another medication and there needs to be this regulation of the different chemicals in order to keep the feeling suppressed enough but then there's not a real solution so if somebody's suppressing the feelings and there's some normalcy of brain chemistry but they're not also eliminating the cause of the actual sadness which is the craving desire attachment then they're not getting to an actual solution so the pharmaceuticals the chemicals aren't actually solving the brain chemistry because that stuff is only off balance because the mind is polluted with craving desire attachment so as long as the medications are there there might be some stability of the brain chemistry but the feelings are still there the sadness is still there this is why you observe that your father never really eliminated the depression it just kind of suppressed it and kind of got him to a point where maybe he could function to a certain degree but it never actually got to the real source of the problem because the brain chemistry is not the problem. So that's why it was never solved. So if there's not this combination of, okay, either someone's on medications now, or we're gonna have them on medications to get some brain chemistry regulation, but then couple that with some learning and some training of the mind so that now the mind can eliminate the pollutions that are causing it to be shaken up. And then as that becomes more and more stable, then we can back out the medications and now the person can be stable and steady permanently as they get closer and closer to enlightenment. Okay, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And then um, on Facebook, uh, Brandon Haynes asks, what do you see are some of the main environmental factors in places such as the U.S. that cause more of the population to have untrained minds to the point that we seek medical help, as opposed to Thailand, where you say this is not an issue? Yeah, the difference is that in Western cultures, 
they don't have the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path. They don't have this entire network of temples all over the country that is a national resource and a national treasure that the Thai people have developed over the course of many generations. There's over 40,000 temples here and over 30,000 of them are actively working with ordained practitioners and community members supporting it. So over the 800 to 1200 years that these teachings have been here, Thai people have donated their time, effort, energy, and resources to build this national resource, this national treasure, where now anywhere in any community, there's tons of temples that if you're having a problem with your child, if you're having a problem with your husband or wife or your job or your boyfriend or girlfriend or anything that's going on in your life, you can just walk in, go find somebody, sit down, start explaining to them what your challenges are, and they'll be able to help you with teachings to be able to help you in your life. And that's what the Thai people have created here. There's about 300,000 ordained practitioners helping 70 million people. So you can do the math and the number of temples and the number of ordained practitioners. And then once you kind of get help from one particular person, you might continue to see that person regularly as part of your way of learning. And you learn from that teacher, but you also learn from your parents and your grandparents and the elders in your village and you know your friends and people like this. You have all these different resources that you go to in order to seek help and to seek guidance. There's that support system where people are interested and motivated to help you when you ask for help. But in places like America, from my experience growing up, there's a lot of ego in the mind. I can do this myself. I don't need anybody. And when we do turn to help, we go and we pay a therapist or we pay a doctor to tell us that we're mentally ill. And then our brain and our mind gets addressed through this Western medicine, which, as I've mentioned, it can be helpful in certain situations. But if there was a network of temples and people that know this wisdom and then the american people could then go to those people free of charge without anything because donations are being given to support the temples and support the people with food and clothing and water and things like this then you have somebody that you can reach out to to get help and that's essentially how i live my life is that i'm supporting a community of people and at any time that you guys have problems you can come to me and ask for help. It doesn't mean I can help you in that exact moment. It might be a couple of hours or a couple of days before we can talk. But nonetheless, there is a person here that can help you. And what you guys are choosing to do is support me in my life to be able to provide this wisdom to you. And you have this resource now available to you, which doesn't exist in America. So because Things like the three universal truths, four noble truths, and eightfold path don't exist with wisdom in Western cultures. That's why we're seeing the proliferation of what people think are medical problems. But in reality, it's just a lack of wisdom, a lack of moral conduct, and a lack of mental discipline because people's minds aren't trained. We don't grow up understanding these teachings. Therefore, we blame other people for our problems. And then the ego is so high that we think we know the answers 
and we think everybody else is the problem. And if everybody would just do things my way, this world would be perfect. That's what we tend to think in the unenlightened state, but that's wrong view. So when we establish right view, which is why I started with that, with the Four Noble Truths, then we understand that we're causing our own mental health. Whatever we experience in our mind, we're causing that. But when you've got millions of people going around blaming everyone else and thinking everyone else is the problem, then you get the issues that we see in environments like the U.S. or other places. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, there are no more questions on YouTube and Facebook, but I think that Tony has a couple on Zoom. Yes, sir. Kayla uh, asks, can you reach enlightenment while on a lower, lower level of meditation? There's enlightened beings that are taking medication, I'm sure, but in terms of mental health, in terms of like, you know, sadness or anger or lack of concentration or things like this, an enlightened being isn't going to need medication for that. But there's a transition here where you can't just snap your fingers, learn all this wisdom, train all the mind and get off the medications. It's going to take gradual time to to be able to do that. And as a person does that, then they're not going to need the medications for their mental health because they're experiencing the natural state of the enlightened mind. And when we say this word enlightenment, and I talk about it as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, essentially what enlightenment is, is somebody has cultivated deep wisdom to understand how to train the mind. And they've done that training. They've done that work over multiple years. They've done that work. They've implemented that wisdom and their mind is now trained that they no longer experience any discontentedness. So we use this word enlightenment or during the lifetime of the Buddha, Nibbana was used. But really what it means is this person has deep wisdom about the natural laws of existence and they've done the work to train the mind and they won't need medication once their mind is fully trained. But that's going to take time. So if you've been learning for a year or two years and you're still taking medication, okay, fine. Don't pressure yourself to get off of medications and thinking that that's what's going to get you to enlightenment. But understand that as you build more stability in the mind, then as you see that stability, that's where you can gradually decrease the medications. When or if you get to that point is really up to you and your own practice and how your mind develops over time, but you shouldn't rush that or think that it's going to happen suddenly. Thank you, sir. And Shantana asks, how to teach, share, apply the knowledge of the cause of ADHD, ADD, that it come from craving, desire, attachment with my students? I am working in school in special education, and I see those children get suppressed by medication so that they can in public school environment, so that they can be in public school environment. If I was a public school teacher, I wouldn't share this with the students because it's not my place. If my role in public school is to teach English or to teach math, then that's what I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach English or I'm going to teach math. My role in that situation isn't to teach the Buddhist teachings. So it's important that we stick to our role and that we know that what we're fulfilling in that situation, that would be the way to to handle that is to teach what it is that you're 
role is to teach rather than think that you need to share this particular wisdom with those people. Because if those children's parents have decided that they're going to use medications to address this, then it's the parents that are making that decision and their parents are sending the child to school to learn English or math. They're not sending them there to learn this particular content. And you can get yourself into a lot of challenges and difficulties if you're not fulfilling the role that it is that you're meant to fulfill. Thank you, sir. She's following up with, or Fantana is following up with, how to bring the right view knowledge to the U.S. slash school community. The best way to do it is to hold events where there's retreats and learning opportunities, and then just invite people to come learn. They have to make the choice to come learn. You can't force somebody to get to enlightenment. You can't force them to gain wisdom. You can't force them to train their mind. All you can do is hold events of retreats and classes and things like this and invite people to come learn. In situations where you can perhaps give a gift of a book, but even giving a gift that doesn't guarantee that they're going to read the book or that they're going to actually learn and practice what's in the book. But that's one way to help people to learn. But by having events and then inviting people to come to those events, they have to choose to step forward. That's one of the big challenges when you first discover the Buddhist teachings and how true they are, is that there's this craving that you want everybody else to know. But you have to eliminate that craving and just focus on your own practice and where you would like to set up events and invite people to come learn. Those people who choose to come learn, they can learn. People who don't choose to come learn, they won't learn. They're just going to continue to suffer. And that's what they need to experience. And that's what they're choosing for their life. Thank you, sir. There's no more questions. Okay. So let's look at some of the specific things that are labeled as mental illness today and how they relate to the teachings of the Buddha. Because in this first column under mental illness, this is a condition or an illness that people are saying that this is a person who's mentally ill. And in some cases, they even say your brain is defective. And then in the other column, I have explaining how this is related to the Buddhist teachings and essentially what's really going on in terms of the teachings of the Buddha. So someone who has ADHD or ADD, essentially they are lacking concentration. They find it very challenging to focus and concentrate on a specific thing or activity or task. And the reason why is because the mind has this craving for mental stimulation. It wants to be stimulated and the person has maybe been bouncing around from thing to thing to thing to thing. We see this in children a lot, but even as adults, people can experience this lack of focus and lack of concentration. It's just because the mind has craving for mental stimulation and those pleasant feelings, and it hasn't been trained to have right concentration and to be focused. By training the mind, then the mind will have focus and concentration. But as long as the mind hasn't been trained, yeah, it's going to lack concentration. It's going to lack focus. And when somebody sees that lack of focus today, someone's saying, oh, that person's mentally ill. They have ADHD. Now here's the medication. And that medication may bring a bit of concentration to the mind, but it's not a permanent solution because this medication can only affect the brain chemistry for so long. And now there's a new medication or another medication that needs to be introduced. 
if they actually just train the mind to eliminate the craving for mental stimulation and produce right concentration, then they can actually eliminate the symptoms that we're referring to as ADHD or ADD. Some other ones here, anorexia, bulimia, or other eating disorders. This is a mind that's craving a certain appearance with the physical body. There's a certain beauty or a certain image that this mind has, and it's trying to replicate that in their own body. They might be looking at certain images or pictures that are in a magazine or something like that, and they think that this person's so beautiful, and they might want to be that same way. But what the mind doesn't understand is that that particular image has been photoshopped. It's not even the actual person. It's been adjusted and modified. And now the mind is craving permanence, wanting to look the same as that person. And the person is identifying with this physical body as who they are as a person. There's that personal existence view or that self that the mind is misunderstanding. So now there's this anorexia or this bulimia or this eating disorder where the person is trying to get to that false image that they're craving for this certain image of beauty of what they think beauty is. The person is not mentally ill in terms of the brain is defective. They're struggling and having challenges and experiencing painful feelings that their body doesn't look the way that they want it to look. But the problem isn't going to be solved by giving this person medications. What's going to solve this problem is the mind needs to understand that this craving to look a certain way is going to keep causing painful feelings when you don't look that way. You can't look a certain way permanently. Then there's things like anxiety, bipolar disorder, depression, hoarding, insomnia. We could go through each of these individually, but what I'll do is just give you guys a chance to ask any questions on these that you like. I've got this table and I've got another table as well. And this is in the book in chapter 22, where if you're familiar with the symptoms of these things that are labeled as mental illness and you're familiar enough with the teachings, you can see the connections here. And where you're having challenges to see those connections, that's what we can talk about here in our class. So let me show you guys the other part of this table as well, so that if there's any that you would like to ask questions about, either these or others that I didn't include, because this isn't an exhaustive list. What this chapter was really written for is people who are currently thinking they are mentally ill and that their brain's defective to help them see that there's actually a real true problem that's in the mind, but it can be addressed through training the mind through the teachings of the Buddha. And it was written for medical professionals to see that, hey, maybe we're not understanding this whole mental health picture and this whole mental health thing as well as we think we are. Because if you talk to doctors and researchers, they will tell you that there's so much about the human body that they don't understand. Doctors have been very honest with me before, and they said that they probably know about 1% of what is really transpiring in the brain. The brain is so complex that doctors and researchers, they admit that they only know about 1% of what they think they need to know in order to fully understand the brain. So we're lacking wisdom about the brain and how it functions. And if you look back to the recent past, it wasn't so long ago. 
that people were using heroin and cocaine in elixirs in order to solve pain. For pain relief, people were taking heroin and cocaine at one time, probably just about 100 or 120 years ago. That's what was going on. And we realized at a certain point, hold on a second, we've got this wrong. We shouldn't be taking heroin and cocaine in order to resolve pain. So we updated our wisdom and we updated our practices and we realized that heroin isn't a, a good pain reliever, that people are going to actually get addicted to this and we shouldn't be using it. So nowadays, what I'm sharing is that we are looking at this mental health in a way that we don't fully understand because there's this lack of wisdom of what's really causing the mind to be discontent. And we're using substances and chemicals to solve things that aren't actually solving the real problem, much like we did with heroin and cocaine in the past. So any questions that you guys have, this is everything that I had to share with you guys. If you guys have questions on any of these things, I can explain to you what the symptoms are and how they're related to just pollutions of the mind and how through training the mind, it will actually eliminate the symptoms that are being experienced through what we're calling mental illnesses today. So feel free to put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand in Zoom, and I'll be pleased to help you. Yes, sir, Miranda has a um, Yes, sir, I'm interested to ask a question that's related to the teachings for today uh, from Denise Davis on Facebook. She asks, Teacher David, is my uncomfortable feeling with showing myself on Zoom showing I need to work on my ego or cravings? It's both. There's the ego is the personal existence view in conceit. And if somebody isn't willing to show themselves on the camera, they have a certain craving. They're craving and clinging to this personal existence view, thinking that this body is who you are as a person and that this is somehow going to lead to painful feelings. Probably at some point in your life, people have been negative or degrading or diminishing and made comments to you about how you look or what your appearance is. And then now the mind is clinging and holding on to those past comments. And now there's this apprehension about maybe showing yourself on the camera in Zoom or in different ways that you interact with people. And this is because the mind's craving and clinging and it's thinking that this physical body is who you are. And if you had these experiences in the past that I just talked about, then the mind is clinging and holding on to those. And you don't want to experience those painful feelings again. And because the mind thinks in the unenlightened state that the way to solve this is to push this away with aversion, and that solves the problem. It thinks that if I just don't show myself on the camera, then I won't experience the painful feelings but that's wrong view. The mind doesn't understand that there's still that craving, that clinging, that holding on. The way to actually solve the problem is to put the mind in the situation where you are showing yourself on the camera, not yourself, but this physical body. Because if you open up your camera on Zoom and you train the mind to be comfortable in that situation, then you can see that you can let go of the craving, you can let go of the personal existence view, and then the mind can reside peaceful and joyful, whether you're showing your camera or you're not. But as long as you avoid the situation, 
you're not actually solving the problem. So you actually have to put the mind in that situation to be able to extinguish the craving in this particular case. Thank you, sir. Also on Facebook, Brandon Haynes asks, what about autism? Does this fall into the categories of delusion? I don't understand much about autism. That's why I didn't put it on the chart here. I'm interested in understanding more about autism. I've been around autistic children and parents have talked to me at different times about their children and I've observed autistic children, but I don't know enough about it to really relate it to whether it's coming from what's happening with the pollution of the mind and the untrained mind. I'm sure in some cases it is because as I talk to some people, you know, as I hear some of the symptoms, I can see that those symptoms are directly related to just pollutions of mind. But I would need to understand more about autism to really give a better description if it's indeed related to certain aspects of training the mind in the teachings of the Buddha. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, to go back to the previous slide, insomnia, what is to be said? I mean, it says here that an awakened mind needs little sleep, and as the mind awakens, interrupted and erratic sleep patterns emerge, and that we can be craving a permanent or fixed sleeping schedule. My younger sister is 20 months younger than I am, and by the time she was born, I, from what my mother tells me, thought I was done taking naps and was already experiencing insomnia. So as that young of a child, roughly two years old, there's no way that the mind was awakening because I hadn't heard the teachings yet during this lifetime. And I don't think that I would have been craving a permanent sleep schedule at that time. And this progressed into, she used to actually give me um, a children's cold medicine at night to make me sleep once I got to elementary school age because there would just be days in a row where I wouldn't sleep. So what is to be said about a situation like that? And then also as I'm progressing on this path, insomnia is no longer a problem. So it's like I'm seeing the opposite of this as the mind is awakening. The sleep is getting not a fixed sleep schedule, but better sleep, I guess, where I can sleep for three, five hours and then be fine. Okay. So let's first talk about insomnia and what that's being described as. And then let's talk about your situation. So with insomnia, what we're saying is that this person is having difficulty sleeping. They have an erratic sleep schedule or they're just not sleeping for a period of time. And we're calling this insomnia, that this person has this illness of insomnia. Now there's a chemical that's introduced to put the mind and the body into sleeping. And sometimes as we're using that medication, it, it's effective for a period of time and then it's not. And the mind is having difficulties falling asleep or just sleeping or staying asleep. That's what we call insomnia. So in the situation where somebody's experiencing this, it's not they're mentally ill or that there's a defective brain. It's what's going on in the mind. That if we're constantly thinking about our day, if our mind is clinging and holding on to our thoughts and the mind is kind of ruminating as we're trying to fall asleep, the mind isn't able to kind of naturally fall asleep. 
Or if we're looking at somebody's sleep schedule and it's like, okay, they normally go to sleep at 10, but now they're going to sleep every night at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. and they're waking up tired because they have to go to the work the next day. Well, this is just impermanence that their sleep schedule is, is not a real schedule. It's not a fixed schedule that you're going to go to sleep at different times throughout your life that it's not possible to go to sleep at exactly the same time all the time. And as somebody's mind awakens and they're starting to learn, the mind has their sleep schedule. It kind of bounces around and they need less and less sleep. But as the mind gets more fully trained and the pollution of mind is out of the mind, there's no longer this craving and clinging. So the mind doesn't have this constant thinking and this bombardment of thoughts that it is easier for someone to fall asleep at night. That is their mind is more well trained. So this explains your situation, Miranda, that when you were born into this life, I'm almost confident that you studied these teachings in a prior life and that when you were born into this life as a child, there was a certain recollection of the teachings, even though at two years old, you wouldn't have been able to articulate them. But there was a certain amount of wisdom that you had that was there and that the mind was aware of these teachings and it might have been to a certain degree of awakening. Of course, you weren't able to articulate the Four Noble Truths, but there was a certain amount of understanding of certain teachings. And there was also a certain amount of clinging and and craving and holding on. And maybe the mind had a, a certain amount of thoughts that were being ruminating in the mind, making it challenging to sleep. And the reason why I say that is because as you started learning with me, you learned relatively quickly, relatively straightforward. It didn't take an enormous amount of work. I mean, yes, you did a lot of work in order to learn and practice and you you know, helped with a lot of projects that I had that you were learning the teachings more so and dedicating a lot more time because you had the time to be able to do that at that point in your life. So because you learned so readily That's why I'm pretty convinced that you studied these teachings in a prior life because there seemed to already be a certain kind of acumen or wisdom that was on board that as you started learning, you just kind of adopted the teachings and understood them relatively straightforward and with ease, even though there was a lot of work that you did and a lot of questions that you had to ask, a lot of reflection, a lot of work that you're doing that all came about in a pretty straightforward way. And now that your mind is more trained and less polluted, you're finding it easier to fall asleep and stay asleep because the mind doesn't have this persistent cravings going on in the mind. So that's how I would explain it for you. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. Now, yes, Shantana asks a question, (coughs) excuse me, Could you please explain depression suicide? As per school training research says, said 11 minutes in the US people commit suicide. Data also shows that students in middle school, high school, a high percentage have thought, has think about suicide. Can you explain that, sir? Sure. So what's happening is an individual is having painful feelings. They really typically don't want to die. They're looking for an escape. And because there's these painful feelings in the mind, the only escape that they have come to think about and be able to implement 
is to have uh, death and having suicide. So they're craving for these painful feelings to stop. They're craving for extermination of this life. And they think that that's the real escape to be able to get away from the painful feelings. But if you talk to people that are considering suicide, they'll typically tell you they're not interested in dying. They just want the painful feelings to stop, but they just don't know how to do that. And they oftentimes resort to suicide, but this actually makes the problem worse because now they're continuing to be reborn over and over and over again. And they have to come back and experience the same problems and they have to address those in either the lower realms and working their way through the lower realms and getting back to a human birth. And then eventually they're going to need to confront all of the same difficulties and same challenges again. They haven't actually solved the problem. But when somebody's taught that they only have one life and that's what they believe, then they think that they're solving the problem by killing themselves. But they don't understand the truth. They're just functioning through that misperception and that false belief that when they kill themselves, they're actually relegating themselves to extensive amounts of continued painful feelings. And they're going to have to address these painful feelings at some point in the future anyway. So while you're in this human birth and you're experiencing painful feelings, rather than shrink back from that and run away from it or try to kill yourself, understanding that that's not a, an escape. Instead, if you need to put a pause on things, gain some clarity of mind, but then focus on learning and practicing these teachings. That's the real escape from the painful feelings, not suicide. Thank you, sir. Uh, Shantana asks, in a school, I think we have craving slash desire slash passion for children to learn slash do things in a limited time. And no doubt we teach them to do multiple tasks and to try to accomplish the goal. Do better, do more, think more, which I think is opposite to eliminate the cravings, desire, and attachment. What is the middle way to look at this, sir? Yeah, you know, as children are growing up nowadays, you know, they're being pushed and pushed and pushed. The parents have craving for their children to be a certain way. And they push and push and push the children. And then the children adopt those cravings and go, 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 go. There's all these electronic devices where the mind is being confronted with this media and it's jumping around from thing to thing to thing to thing. There's an understanding of why the mind lacks concentration. We've seen this explosion of lack of concentration. We see this explosion of painful feelings because of the craving, desire, attachment that's in the mind of the parents that's then being pushed over to the children. The thing that has to occur in order for there to be some real results is the parents need to learn what the true problem is through the path to enlightenment and then slowly guide the children in order to learn that. They can choose not to do that and continue to believe that the problem is a brain defect and introduce medications, but this isn't going to solve the problem. As long as a parent is lacking the wisdom of these teachings, they're going to struggle and have difficulties. They might be yelling or hollering at their children. They might think that their anger is a result of their children. And now they have a craving for their children to be a certain way and trying to force or control their child to be a certain way. Because with wrong view, the mind's going to think that the child is the problem. And if I can just get this child to do everything I want it to do, then my life will be perfect. 
but that's not what's really causing the parent's anger or the struggles in the parent's mind. It's their own craving, desire, attachment. So when a parent addresses their own craving, desire, attachment and increases their wisdom, improves their moral conduct and improves their mental discipline, now they can be patient. They can be more loving. They can have more fulfilling relationships with their children. And as they're guiding their children with more patience, then they'll see that their child will learn that patience. When the parent has better moral conduct and more focus and concentration, and they can guide the child in how to do that, then the child will be able to do that. But as long as the parent is lacking the wisdom of how to train the mind, and they're lacking this wisdom, this moral conduct, and this mental discipline, then their child is going to lack that too. This is why people say that mental illness is genetic and it runs in families. It's actually not mental illness to begin with. The brain isn't defective. It's not passed down in genes. What it is is that the parents are lacking wisdom of how to have moral conduct and mental discipline. And now the children grow up conforming to what the parents do. And because they see their parents' mind out of control, their mind becomes the same way because they're just mimicking and conforming to what their parents are doing. So it's not genetic. It's just beings conforming to what other beings are doing. So if a child grows up in a household where there's lots of difficulties and struggles, where people yell and holler at each other, then that child's going to grow up and yell and holler at people. Or if a child grows up in an environment where people are blaming everyone else for their feelings, then that child's going to grow up and blame everyone else for their feelings. Wrong view is going to get more deeply implanted in the child's mind. And that's what they believe is the real problem. But that's not true. So these challenges that we see in families, they're being handed down through learned behaviors. It's not being handed down through genes because wisdom in the mind doesn't get handed down through genes. But when we are lacking wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, then our children are going to lack that too. But conversely, when we first as parents gain wisdom, and then we practice moral conduct, and we practice mental discipline, and we know how to do this for ourselves, then we can patiently guide our children how to do it. And they will grow up in a much better way than what we potentially grew up with if we were struggling with these things when we were growing up. Our children don't have to go through those same struggles if we do the work as parents to first work on our own mind. And then we can politely and respectfully guide our children to do the same thing. Yes, sir. That seems to be all the questions. All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class. As you see, this, this topic can be quite beneficial and really helpful in our life if we start understanding what the real problem is and this challenges that are being experienced in the human mind. When we understand what the problem is, the cause, the elimination, the path forward, then we can experience real results. If you have been diagnosed with a mental illness and you truly believe that that's what's going on, as long as you think that your brain is defective and you can't improve your life, then you're going to continue to struggle and have difficulties. If we think that our anger or our intention, speech and actions are being caused by a brain defect, 
then we're not taking responsibility for those things. So therefore, we can't actually fix them. But by understanding what the real problem is, then we can actually fix it and we can get real solution to what it is that we're struggling with. So the Buddhist teachings provide a way for you to learn the wisdom, to learn the moral conduct and learn the mental discipline. But because we've grown up thinking for so long the way that we've thought, lacking this wisdom, it's going to take a good amount of time to really transform the mind and get to a point where we can bring on the wisdom and then have the ability to practice moral conduct and mental discipline. It's not a quick fix, but when you face the challenges on this path, it is ultimately a permanent fix. It's a real solution that you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing. It's a real escape from all these painful feelings that we experience. But it's just going to take time to gradually work towards that. So thank you guys for learning and practicing and being interested to understand these teachings. We're coming to the end of our group learning program in the next few weeks. Next Sunday is going to be chapter 23, where we're going to be studying symbolism of these teachings, where you can get these reminders of the teachings through imagery. Things like what we call the Dhamma wheel or certain artwork or certain architecture that are built into Buddhist art or the architecture of the temples. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught orally. There wasn't a written language that they wrote down the teachings. So when he taught orally, he used these symbols in order to remind people of his teachings. And now those symbols still exist in the world. And now that you've learned these teachings throughout this program, I can teach you what these symbols are so that when you see artwork or when you visit temples or things like this, that you can remember the teachings and these imageries, this artwork can remind you of what the teachings are. So we're going to go through various images and artwork and I'm going to help you guys see how this is reminding you of the teachings. And they're in the book. So if you read chapter 23, you'll be able to see the description of them and then I'll walk you guys through it next week. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together. In November and in December, we're going to do kind of an extension of the group learning program where I'm going to be teaching eight individual classes that were the classes that were taught as part of the retreat in the USA this past summer. There's eight classes that I haven't taught anywhere other than at the retreat. So they haven't been taught online and I haven't written about them either. So I'm going to share these eight classes. I'm calling it the retreat series, Harmony in Relationships. All eight of these classes each Sunday over the course of November and December are going to be focusing on helping you to develop harmony in your relationships. So things like how do you practice in a world where everybody else isn't practicing these teachings? How do you share these teachings with your children? How do you practice these teachings in a work environment with coworkers and being in a professional environment where there's lots of demands and people don't understand craving, desire, attachment, perhaps? So there's all these classes and others that are going to be shared over November and December. And you can see that on the schedule. If you know where the schedule is or if you need the schedule, just send me a message and I'll make sure you get the schedule. You'll see these eight classes showing up in November and December. And then the beginning of January, we're going to restart the group learning program from the very beginning. 
So perhaps I'll see you guys in some of these future classes. In the meantime, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.